Welcome back to the Core EM Podcast, core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. This is the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue EM Residency Program. With me again is my co-host, Jenny Beck-Esme. Jenny, what do we got on the docket for today? Hey, Swami. So our conference this month is focusing on gastrointestinal disorders, and today we had a lecture by one of our second-year residents, Mark Mickley, discussing bowel obstruction. So I figured we'd delve into this topic a little. Excellent. It's a great topic, one that we either see or at least entertain the diagnosis on a daily basis. So a bowel obstruction should be on the differential for any patient presenting with abdominal pain, but we get particularly interested in this diagnosis in patients with previous abdominal surgeries and in those presenting with complaints of abdominal distension or constipation. A bowel obstruction is a pretty simple concept. It occurs when intestinal contents can't pass through a transition point, and this causes proximal dilatation and distal decompression. So while this doesn't seem that complicated, a lot can really go wrong when this happens. In the proximal portion of the bowel, intestinal wall edema leads to decreased absorption and a buildup of electrolyte-rich fluids that can result in severe hypovolemia and metabolic derangement such as hyponatremia, hypokalemia, hypochloremia, and metabolic alkalosis. Yeah, and on top of that, a lot of these electrolyte issues are also going to be compounded by the vomiting that occurs here as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in addition to the increased transluminal pressure that distends the bowel, you get greater diameters, creating tension that compresses the intramural vessels. And so you're going to get some ischemia, metabolic acidosis, and eventually you're going to get necrosis and perforation. I think this is sort of the horrid complication of small bowel obstructions that always taught us don't allow the sun to set on a small bowel obstruction because you don't want the bowel to infarct. Exactly. Now, bowel obstructions can be classified in various ways. For starters, they can be identified by the location, so small bowel versus large bowel. And then they can also be divided into mechanical bowel obstructions or functional bowel obstructions, which we also call the ileus. The vast majority of obstructions occur in the small bowel, and most of these are the result of post-op adhesions, which account for about 80% of SBOs. So this is why an SBO jumps to the top of your differential in a post-surgical abdomen. But don't be fooled. This is still, of course, leaving about 20% of SBOs that occur in patients who have never had an abdominal surgery or a virgin abdomen. After we leave adhesions, the number two cause is going to be incarcerated hernia, which is another reminder that we have to do a thorough physical exam on abdominal pain patients. We discussed this last week, talking about GU exams in patients with abdominal pain, and I think it needs to be restressed a bit here. Far too often, abdominal exams are performed in patients who still have their pants on, and that kind of limits assessment of the groin and the genital area where these hernias are going to live. Now, large bowel obstructions, they get a little less attention than the SBOs because, you know, they don't happen that often. It's only about 20% of obstructions. In large bowel obstruction, cancer is the most common cause, and number two is diverticulitis. Okay, so now that we've reviewed what a bowel obstruction is, why it's bad, and what causes it... What do we need to know about managing these patients in the emergency department? So typically, these patients are going to require some form of imaging to diagnose the obstruction. We, can, we have to evaluate them for possible underlying etiologies of the obstruction and look for a transition point. A series of abdominal x-rays, usually a pair of upright and flat plane films, can be a starting point for your imaging. An obstruction can be diagnosed on plane film if there are two or more dilated loops of bowel with air fluid levels. The problem with this test is that it's not very sensitive i.e. you're going to miss a lot of obstructions with a plain film only approach. And it's not exactly 100% specific either. So the findings of SBO on a plain film may actually be the result of another diagnosis. We actually did a deep dive on this topic for EM Lyceum a bit back, and we'll link that post in the show notes. Another imaging modality that's gaining a lot of popularity right now is bedside ultrasound, 
When looking at the numbers in terms of sensitivity and specificity, ultrasound far outstrips the utility of abdominal x-ray for diagnosing SBO. There's a great video on performing a bedside sono for SBO on the website 5 Minutes Sono, which we're going to link in the show notes as well. Right. Okay. So the most common study you're going to likely get when you're wanting to diagnose a bile obstruction is, of course, the CT scan, as this is the current gold standard. Then the next big question is whether or not to have the patient drink oral contrast. Usually these patients are nauseated, they're not tolerating PO, they're miserable, and then we have, hand them this giant jug of gastrographin and they look at us like we're totally crazy. To answer this question, Mark turned to the American College of Radiologists' appropriateness guidelines and found that, in fact, oral contrast is not necessary for the diagnosis of SBO and, in fact, is contraindicated for studies in patients in which you are highly suspicious of SBO because it may obscure wall edema, it wastes time, it induces nausea and vomiting with the potential for aspiration, and it can ultimately delay the diagnosis. So, in general, oral contrast should only be used if the patient is tolerating PO well and if you have a broad difference diagnosis. Yeah, I just want to stress that point one more time. So if you have a high suspicion for bowel obstruction, especially a high grade one, don't give oral contrast. It delays diagnosis and thus treatment. Also, let's remember these patients with high grade SBO, they need to go to the operating room. So I don't think filling a patient pre-op with a liter of gastrographin makes sense because some poor anesthesiologist is going to need to intubate this guy. Now, if they've got that high risk obstruction, they're high risk for vomiting and aspiration. And now they're going to vomit that entire liter onto the anesthesiologist and then it's going to pour down into their lungs. <laughs> so clearly this doesn't make a lot of sense. Now, on the other hand, if you've got a patient with undifferentiated abdominal pain with a long differential, oral contrast may be beneficial. Although, with improvement in CT technology, oral contrast is becoming less and less necessary. So after you've got your imaging and you've diagnosed the obstruction, the management is really pretty simple. The patient is made NPO, they're placed on IV fluids, and an NG tube is sometimes placed to wall suction. These patients then are usually admitted to surgery for further management. They may require operative treatment, like we said, if they have a mechanical obstruction that is not reversible or if there's evidence of strangulation or peritonitis. If not, they'll likely be managed conservatively with the NG tube until the obstruction resolves itself. Yeah, and often the NG tube itself won't be necessary, even though it's considered standard practice. A high-grade SBO or a patient with lots of vomiting, go ahead and drop the NG tube. It's clearly going to be necessary here. A partial SBO who's tolerating PO, I'm not sure there's much of a benefit. All right, Jenny, let's review those key take-home points one more time before we close up. Okay, to review, first, bowel obstructions can occur in the small or the large bowel. Most commonly, they occur in the small bowel and are the result of surgical adhesions, but don't forget they can happen in a virgin abdomen as well, so always keep this diagnosis in mind. Second, imaging options include x-ray, ultrasound, and the gold standard CAT scan. Remember, you don't have to force the patient to down the gastrographin if they aren't tolerating it. Just don't be that cruel. And last, treatment for us in the ED is NPO, IV fluids, potentially an NG tube, and definitely a surgery consult. Excellent. Well, that's all for the Core EM podcast this week. Head on over to the site at coreem.net, where we've got a ton of great core content EM. Coming up this week on Wednesday, we're going to have a blog post on compartment syndrome and on Thursday, a journal update on using ultrasound for fluid assessment. Don't forget to check us out on Facebook, follow us on Google Plus and on Twitter where our handle is at core underscore EM. Thanks and see you next week.